Good morning, beloved. If you have your copy of Scripture, we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you would like to make that ready. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I have just one sibling, um, but if you have one or more siblings, you know that it is true that siblings are often in conflict. Um, it's just kind of part of living together and, and the, the reality that it, family dynamics. Uh, but there's one sibling group known as the Dassler Brothers, and the Dassler brothers, like most siblings, got into conflict quite a bit throughout their childhood. And then as adults, they actually managed to come together to start a shoe company. You may know of the Dassler Shoe Company. But they started this company together, and this um, happened to take place around the time of World War II. And so um, these two brothers that were kind of always kind of vying for attention and everything else and just in conflict, um, one day Rudolph Dassler and his family were in a bomb shelter. World War II was going on, the sirens were going off, so they go down into the, the uh, bomb shelter, and Adolf, the brother, Dassler, Adolf comes and he joins them. And as he comes in, he makes a comment, and I won't actually say the comment because it includes some exp expletives, um, but he makes a comment about the bombers. But Rudolph, the brother, hears this comment and thinks that he's talking about Rudolph and his family. And so that just kind of sets them up for another conflict, and that relationship never recovered. So Adolf was nicknamed Addy. And so Addy launched what we know as Adidas Shoes, and Rudolph launched Ruda Shoes, which then later became known as Puma Shoes. And there you have it, Adidas and Puma. Because they can't get along because of this conflict. And so today, as we continue this series, going through First and Second Samuel, kind of looking at what it looks like to be peacemakers and to pursue hospitality, to know that there is a seat at the table for you and for others, to be able to welcome others into that, to live at peace. Um, today, we want to explore this. And so I wanna start with a question to you. And I want you to just take a moment, I'll even pause, and I really want you to answer this question, at least internally. Who do you struggle most to have peace with? Who do you struggle most to have peace with? And then I want you to actually dig deep into that and ask yourself why that is. What is it that they are actually threatening? Why is it that you cannot find peace with that person? What is the threat against you that you see in this person or this people group or this position, whatever it is, just what is it that's actually at the root of that? And so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you have your copy of scripture and you're there, um, we're gonna start reading in verse one, which we actually read last week. So um, we're gonna recap a little bit. But starting in verse one of chapter 18, it says, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so we, we covered this last week, but this idea of David and Jonathan coming into this just blossoming friendship, and this friendship shows us something. And we define friendship as like, a friendship is someone who has attachment and affection for another person. And so we look at the level of attachment, the attachment here is that there's a covenant. And the affection is, it says that he loved him as himself. And we saw how David and Jonathan's relationship there that has this love, like I love you like I love myself, and we are entering this covenant relationship is actually a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus, the ultimate friend. 
that Jesus, in terms of attachment, the new covenant, the covenant of his blood, that his life would secure this relationship with us. His death would make this permanent. His resurrection would be the guarantee it has been accomplished. The sacrifice was enough. And so the attachment, the new covenant that we live in as followers of Jesus and the level of affection that Jesus, even before he died, he told his friends as he called them friends and said, I no longer, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. He said, like, greater love has known this that a friend will lay down his life. Man, and that's what he did. So his affection, unsurpassed. His attachment to us, unsurpassed. This is the gospel, this good news, and all of what David and Jonathan are doing is pointing us to that. And so now we pick up and we move on. Verse five says, David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. And so it's official. David is now a part of Saul's army. He is leading He's going out to lead these, these military men in conflict, and he is successful. They're winning. And so David is in this pretty prestigious position now. He's a fighting man. He is a warrior. And so remember, musician, the boy who's overlooked, like, oh, well, yeah, you're going to be anointed king. But now the anointed one is now serving under the crazy king, trying to calm him with his musical ability, and then now he's in this beautiful relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he becomes a leader in the military. And so he's going out and he's victorious. He's doing really, really well. So verse six, it says, as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy and with three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, and I won't sing here just to save you, <laughs> Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Mm. David is successful in fighting the Philistines. It's like the, the absolute worst enemy at the time of Israel, the Philistines. And David is fighting them, and he's victorious. And so he's coming back into the city, and all the ladies are around. Like, guys, we know what this is like. You want the ladies' attention? You're like, look at me, look. Oh, yeah, you see what we just did out there? Whew. And David's coming back, and Saul's here, and the ladies are lined up, and they're dancing, and they're singing, and what a song. Isn't that weird? What? <laughs> Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Like, listen, I can be incredibly prideful. If any of you ever decide you want to sing a song for me, please don't make it that weird. That's, like, I don't, like, how do you, how do you receive that kind of a song? <laughs> I don't know. But look at how Saul receives this song. Verse eight, he says, Saul was furious and resented the song. Well, that's kind of understandable. <laughs> they credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Someone is jealous. And what an absurd assessment. Like, his conclusion, hearing this song, you're like, yeah, I get it. That's a weird song. But he takes it so personal. And his conclusion from that song is, ah, what more can he have but the kingdom itself? You go out there, look at them. They love him now. He becomes jealous. He's growing in jealousy. 
uh, I'm gonna butcher this name, but Parul Segal is um, a woman who gave a TED Talk about jealousy in literature, just kind of analyzing the way that jealousy is kind of this pivotal thing in a lot of novels and so forth. But I love this statement she made. She said, when we feel jealous, we tell ourselves a story. We tell ourselves a story about other people's lives. And she goes on and says, these stories make us feel terrible because they are designed to make us feel terrible. As the teller of the tale and the audience, we know just what details to include to dig that knife in. Jealousy makes us all amateur novelists. That's what jealousy does. Like Saul hearing this song, sung for David, and he starts to fabricate this story. And it's just going and going and going. And he knows exactly what's going to hurt worse and worse and worse. And it's like we do this all the time, right? When you have some form of jealousy, when you envy someone else and their position, you start to make this story of how it's so much worse than it actually is, right? And it hurts way more than they're actually hurting you because you know, as, like she said, as the narrator and the audience, you know exactly what's going to cut deepest. And so this jealousy just burns us up. It eats us alive. And so what does it do to Saul? Look at verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. This jealousy. Now Saul is full-on crazy. <laughs> full-on crazy now. And so as we go through this, like I started with what we covered last week because I want you to see a contrast here. You have Saul on the one hand and you have his son Jonathan on the other hand and look at how differently they relate to David. That Jonathan is logically going to be the successor to the throne. Like that's how dynasties work. In this kingship, the son, the firstborn son, typically would become the king in the place of the father. He would be the successor. And so Jonathan would typically, I mean, it would make sense for him to be thinking like, I'd be the next king. And so he's got a vested interest in the kingdom and how this goes. And so now here he is in this beautiful relationship where he loves David as much as he loves himself. He could perceive David as a threat to his coming inheritance of this kingdom. But instead, he loves David. He embraces him, and he celebrates the success of David that is the success of the kingdom. But then you have dad. You have King Saul. And King Saul sees David as nothing more than a threat. When Saul logically could have seen David and like all of his accomplishments, like, you're destroying the Philistines. I've been struggling with this. Thank you, man. <laughs> this is great. He goes, like, everything David is doing is actually helping like, solidify, strengthen Saul's kingdom. And yet, Saul sees it as a threat to his kingdom. Why is that? That doesn't make sense. It's because Saul saw this as a threat to himself. Because it wasn't about the agenda of the kingdom, it was about Saul's personal agenda. David was seen as a threat to Saul's personal agenda. Saul wanted the glory. Saul wanted the praise of the ladies. Saul wanted the acclaim. He wanted all of this. It was about him not about this kingdom. And so Saul couldn't let it go. He just grew more and more jealous because David was a threat to what Saul wanted in his own personal agenda. And so Saul's jealousy, we gotta understand that it's fueled by fear. His jealousy is fueled by fear and how often is our jealousy fueled by fear? 
And that fear then leads to resentment. That this jealousy is fueled by fear and then it leads to this growing resentment. So much resentment that he tries twice to pin David to the wall. Like you've seen those bug collections where they poke the needle and stick it in there. Like imagine Saul thinking like, like a mosquito hurling this thing at him. I'm gonna pin you to the wall playing that liar. Like what? This is crazy. But his jealousy is fueled by fear and it results in resentment. And so fear, just basic dictionary definition. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Now think about this. Saul is afraid of David. Why? He sees him as a threat to his own personal agenda. And so Saul has this growing fear now that results in resentment. But this growing fear, now think about what is happening here. That Saul, as David comes back, leading the military in victory, and Saul comes and he's, oh, look at this, they're singing to him, and all, like, he, just, he gets afraid. This is a threat to me. And so Saul now takes a spear as he's going mad, and David is playing the lyre, trying to calm the crazy king, and he tries to pin him to the wall, not once, but twice. So imagine David in that moment. The David trying to calm the king has a spear hurled at him, escapes being pinned to the wall. And what does he do? Does he run? I'm out. This guy's crazy. He just tried to kill me. I'm done. No. David's not afraid. Fear does not control David. David actually stays and is trying to calm this crazy king. So who is logically supposed to be afraid? David. And yet Saul is illogically afraid. Fear has got a grip on Saul. And yet David profoundly is not afraid and even tries to continue to serve him. And this fear, again, it grows into resentment. And resentment, uh, dictionary definition, is bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. But was he really treated unfairly? No. But again, that goes back to jealousy. And what's at the heart of jealousy? We make this narrative. And we start to manufacture these things. And it becomes something that it really wasn't. And so in his mind, he's feeling this growing fear and this growing anger, this resentment, this bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. And I learned something um, pretty profound to me at least this week about resentment. It's, it's just etymologically, it breaks down to re or again and sent to feel. And so it's to feel again. Resentment is the reliving of something unpleasant, even if it's just imagined. And what I've, what I've been looking at is like how in addiction, in addiction recovery, resentment is a huge thing that has to be discussed and overcome because in, resentment, in addictions, is what happens is you relive whatever led you to that addiction. And so all of us know that true in some way or another, that the thing that you fall prone to over and over, often how do you get there? That maybe, maybe the thing that first pushed you there isn't present, but you relive it in your mind and suddenly you feel it again. That feeling comes back and suddenly now I'll just indulge. And so he's growing in resentment. And this is just crazy. I love uh, Pastor Dane Ortland. He said this about resentment. He said, instead of doing something externally to harm them, you do something internally to harm them. You harbor bitterness. This is the psychology of resentment. You exercise emotional punishment toward them internally when actual punishment can't be exercised externally. You set up a law court in your head since an actual law court is unfeasible. 
But here's what happens. The bitterness you harbor, the emotional punishment you exact in your heart has precisely the opposite effect over time than you think. Bitterness does nothing to the offender while it quietly destroys the offended. Resentment kills, hollows out the resenter, not the resented. Again, it's, it's us in our jealousy, in our fear, in our resentment that is actually being destroyed, not the one at which you want to, to push everything out on. But we can relate to Saul, can't we? I can. I, I can look over the course of my life and see in almost every season, if I'm honest, there's someone that, man, I really wish I was in that position. I really wish I had their circumstances. And I get this bitterness, this growing resentment, like, oh, that's not fair. And you start to just feel all these things and it grows and we're at the heart of that. Like, what are we doing? Just like Saul, we're living for our own personal story, for our own agenda. That I'm not okay with this because I wanted that. How often, this is all of us because this is what the scripture teaches that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. We are all broken sinners, which at the heart of that is idolatry. We're living for someone or something other than God himself. And how often is it that I'm in the place of God? It's my preference. I want my story to be what I want it to be, like Saul. And so even when someone is doing something that I could actually realize, that's actually for my good. Instead, I get this warped view of it, like, no, that's a threat to me and my story, my personal agenda. Now, all of us living for ourselves, in the language of Romans 1, that we've turned away from the creator and turned toward created things in worship. Whether that's ourself, our next gadget, our next position, whatever it is, we turn to so many things other than God, living for our own story. Our own preferred story is where we want to thrive. Like Saul. And what a place to be. But that is true for us. Beloved, look at me. That is true for you and me. But what is also true is God did not leave us there that in the midst of us living for our story, this is what Romans 5, 8 says. It says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were stuck in the insanity of living for our own story, God broke in. He said, you actually hate me right now. You're stuck in your sin. You're my enemy and yet I'm gonna come and I'm gonna love you and I'm going to die for you that Christ came in love for us to change that story so that we would stop living for our own story and live now for God's story. Like the bottom line, you will not find peace living for your own story. You won't find peace living for your own story. But God breaks into our story and shows us it's not your story, Kevin. It's my story and I'm inviting you into it. I'm redeeming this all. Find peace in his story. And so what does the gospel say to all of our fears? The jealousy of when someone else's story is kind of like imposing on our story and uh, oh, what, how we respond and all that, the fear that comes from that. What does the gospel say to our fears? Romans 8.28 is a beautiful promise that we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things 
God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. And so the things that bring fear into my heart, should I fear them? No, because it's not outside of God's sovereign control. And it's not to say that you're, you're broken, like you, there's something terribly wrong with you if you ever get afraid. Like being afraid is a normal human thing. Like it, don't feel ashamed for being afraid. But what do we do with that fear? We subject it to this truth. That God is working all things. It doesn't make it easier necessarily. It might. It still could be incredibly hard. And we, I have tons of questions still that I would love to talk to God about. I don't understand this fully, but I can trust him that he's honest, he's true. He's working all things for our good, even when we don't understand it. And th- that passage actually goes on in verse 31 and 32. It says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So my fear, huh, God's working in every bit of this. There's nothing outside of his control. He's at work in it, redeeming all things. And he's for me. (laughs) God, omnipotent, just unmatched, glorious God of the cosmos is for me. Who can be against me? What am I afraid of? And what does the gospel call us to in relation to resentment? Well, God comes to us in grace. That means we don't deserve his favor and that he gives it freely. He comes to us and he relates to us in grace that we can never earn our salvation. Our salvation is entirely just trusting, acknowledging that God has done this for us. Salvation belongs to the Lord and we are freely invited in that at his cost, not our cost, you can never work enough, you can never be good enough to earn your salvation, but you just put your faith in God who is good enough for everyone that he has died to take our sin on himself. All of our punishment, all of the wrath that is due on us was taken on Jesus, the son of God, dying on a cross in the place where you and I deserve to be. And then he rose again victorious. So we just put our faith in him. Believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin and turn to your savior, Jesus, confessing that you are broken. This is our salvation. And all of that is by grace. In Paul's language, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, he says, it is by grace you are saved. It's by grace through faith. No works, no one can boast. It's all by grace. And so if God relates to us in grace, how do you deal with resentment? You have to see everything through grace. You have to see every person, every circumstance in light of the grace of God for us. Then bitterness and resentment will have no root. Um, The author of Hebrews, he says, pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. You see how he relates the two. If you don't want bitterness, resentment to take root, then grace is the way you have to see things. See the grace of God for us and see grace for others. In grace, relate to others. In grace, see the truth of how we are living so often for our own story, but God redemptively comes in and says, no, 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 let me invite you into a better story. And in this story, you'll find peace. Peace, I will say, that bitterness has no place here, so it won't grow into resentment. No roots can take hold.
I'm at peace because of grace. It's the bottom line. You won't find peace living for your own story. We have got to see that the more obsessed we are with our own agenda, the more you're fixated on your own circumstances, the more we're going to fail to see opportunities for hospitality. If we are so wrapped up in our own personal agenda, my own story, and what I prefer, then I'm going to be so overwhelmed by the fact that I don't actually have real control in this. That my circumstances, I can only do so much. And all of that comes as an affront to me. And so if I'm just constantly overwhelmed with my story and what's happening to me, then how can I possibly now enter into your story? Say, so how could I actually make your story better? And we know as followers of Jesus that it's ultimately about helping them to see how their story is just a part of his story, that Jesus is at the center of it all. So whose agenda should we ultimately be living for? God's. Your life should be lived with God at the center, with God as the aim. His will be done. God's will live for his. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christian, you are an ambassador. And we might slip into thinking like, oh, no, it's like me, me, me. It's my agenda, what I want. No, your calling is to recognize you're living in a foreign land. This is not home. And you're an ambassador. You represent someone else. Their interests, their agenda. Live for his story. Live We do this. Like, this is our ministry of reconciliation that we have been given from God as ambassadors to plead with the world on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Live for his story and see that that is actually for your good. There's peace found here. And so as we conclude, I just want to ask and let you reflect a little. There is no peace in living for your own story. So whose story will you live for? Will you live for God's and see the peace that comes in that? That now I can be at peace with you. And jealousy has no place. The fear that can lead me to irrational things, that can lead to resentment and all this stuff, I can just let it go. It can take no root because grace. God loves me. And I'm at peace because I don't even live for my story. I live for his. So whose agenda are you living for? And think about it in varying scales. Daily, what does your agenda look like? How much time in your daily rhythm is devoted to understanding God's story, hearing from him, and then living that out? Or is he just, ah, I got my five-minute quiet time in. (laughs) That's good. I'm not trying to put like a legalistic weight on you. But I want you to see the freedom of actually just entering into his story and living in light of his story. God's story, his agenda, or weekly. Give an honest assessment of how much of your week is actually devoted to the story of God versus the advancement of your story. And see the invitation, the beauty, again, of stepping into his story. Your career, 
Like, do you make career decisions based on your own story advancing? Or can you see that whatever your career is, this is not me saying, like, you need to get out of that. You better become a pastor. I hope that very few of you do that. Because we need people living for God's story in every part of the marketplace, in every part of the economy. Live for his story. Everything you do, you do to the glory of God. Live for his story in every circumstance. Maybe your relationships. The way that you're treating your spouse. Maybe you have a sibling that you've been in conflict with your whole life. Whatever relationship, your boss you know how radically different that can be if you said, you know what, regardless of what they do, I'm just gonna engage this relationship in light of the story of God. The way that he relates to me will now define how I relate to you. Your generosity, the way you use your finances, take a look at it. I've said this numerous times that money is a currency. We use that word a lot, currency. But the root of that, current, it's like a current, like water and a current moves in a direction. Look at your finances and see, well, whose story am I living for? Because that money, that currency, that current will show you where your heart is leaning. There's an invitation to live for God's story. A life lived for God's agenda begins with a daily agenda reflecting that. So let's start small. Look at tomorrow. And how can tomorrow look different if you're going to live for God's agenda? Yes, you have responsibilities and all these things, and God is not angry about this. He's not calling you to be a monk. But how can you change everything you're doing to now be about God's story? Live for his story. Uh, the Shema in Hebrew, it just means listen. And it goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. to And the, the Hebrew people, historically, and even today, most of them, will start their day and end their day with the Shema this command. In Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, it says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Sounds very familiar, because Jesus once questioned, what is, what is the, the greatest command? And this is what Jesus says. Love God with everything you are, with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this, it continues, it says, these words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. It doesn't say, just let them be in your head. Like, let them be in your heart. Let it sink from your head down into your heart, the causal seat of every decision, every action, everything about who you are, because out of the heart and this wellspring of life, it flows from there and comes out. And so he's saying, sink it deep inside of you that you live and you do everything in great love for God who has such great love for you that he came and he died for you. And fall in love with the one who has loved you to death. Love him and let it sink into your heart. Let them be in your heart. And he says, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Let this story be constantly on your lips, how much God loves you, beloved, and then how much you love him in response to his love. Let it be everywhere. And then he says, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on the city gates. And there are these phylacteries where they'd actually have a tiny scroll with this Shema written on it and they would have it dangling on their forehead between their eyes. And the idea there was everything that I see, I see through this lens that I'm to love God with everything. 
and bind it on your wrist, on your hand. So everything I put my hand to, I remember I do all of this because I love God. That everything I see, I see in his story. Everything I do, I do for his story. And write them on the door so as you're leaving your house, you're like, that's what I'm doing today. I'm gonna live for his story. And on the gates, everywhere. Be practical about it. What can you do in your life to remind you? Live for his story. Because there's no peace in my story. I wanna live for his. And his story is that he loves me. And now I love him. Live for the story of God, not your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how much you love us. It's it's mind-blowing to think, Jesus, that you would do this for us, that you would invite us into such a beautiful story as this, that you, in great love, would come. You took on our sin. You died for us, Jesus. We thank you so much. You are glorious. There is no one like you. You are our king. You are God. we sing again, hear our praises, how would you shape us, Spirit, move in our hearts. If anyone here does not know you, Spirit, would you convict them now, help them to know that they are broken and there's nothing that they can do about their brokenness, but you have done something, Jesus. That you have died and you rose again, so there's life everlasting with you. There's forgiveness of sin if our faith is in you. So give faith, Father. Save souls. And for your children here, would you encourage us to live for your story, to see the beauty of what you have done so that we don't slip into acting like Saul over and over and growing jealous of others and just wishing we had different circumstances in life, but submitting to you and delighting in you, your control over all things.